This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bedside Podcast. This week, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today, Dirty Lola, who is a sex educator, sex edutainer, and a self-proclaimed dildo slinger. That's right. You heard it here. And let's just say Lola really solidifies and has lived up to her title, not only through all of her consultation work that she does with some of the top sexual wellness brands we all know, like, and trust, but she's also been featured in Netflix's miniseries, The Principles of Pleasure, where she really gets into all of the ins and outs around sex toys. And as a sneak peek, you will also get a hit of some of that from our conversation. In our recording together, we covered a lot of ground, so much so that I decided to make this a two-part series. So today's episode will be part one, where we cover the topic of kink. And in part two, you can look forward to Lola sharing an abundance of knowledge and seriously good tips around sex toys and really just having more fun exploring our sex and sexuality. She is the dildo slinger after all. What you can expect today in part one is Lola sharing her upbringing and background that led her to this field, growing up with a teen mom, what that experience was like, and predominantly Lola's intro to kink, the ins and outs of her first ever relationship dynamic with a dom, the psychology of kink, and Lola's transformation around her body image and beauty. I don't want to spoil too much of our conversation. So without further ado, please welcome Dirty Lola to the Bedside Podcast. Lola, I am so excited to have you on the Bedside Podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am just thrilled to get into conversation together. And for those who don't know Lola and her work, she has most recently been on Netflix's series, The Principles of Pleasure, which is just something that everybody should go watch and listen to and digest. It is such a good mini series. Before we get into this awesome conversation today, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and really tell us a bit about who you are and your cultural background and really kind of what led you to the work that you do today. So yeah, I live in New York. I'm currently, I've been here since I was 14, but I grew up in South Carolina. I'm a Southern girl who's been in the city for a very long time. I've always been curious and interested in sex things. I have some trauma things in my background that as a young kid kind of created 
this hyper curiosity around sex and wanting to know. And when you couple like having things happen to you and then nobody talking to you about it, and there's a disconnect between like what you felt in your body and like people telling you things are bad and like, you know, this is bad, but okay, but what about this stuff? I spent a lot of my life searching for my own answers and gaining knowledge But I never knew being a sex educator was a job. This is not something I was born in the 80s. This is recent that a sex educator could be a job, that it's even getting the respect of people being like, oh, that's a job. And that you're not a teacher in school who's teaching sex ed, but that it's a job in which you're doing things out in the world. So it wasn't like I was moving towards that in my life, but I did spend a lot of time self-teaching and inhaling anything I could, getting books, magazines, avid Cosmo reader from probably way too young, just because Cosmo was one of the few places we had in the 80s and 90s, if you were younger, where people were talking about sex, kind of frankly, you know, they were talking about blowjobs and all kinds of things like that. And so, yeah, maybe it wasn't quite appropriate, but we didn't have Cosmo Girl or Teen Cosmo or Teen Vogue or any of these amazing magazines and books and things that are out now. This was just something I did and information I kept digesting. And then I always say I kind of got into this by accident because it started with a Twitter account and me being bored and sharing my sex stories on Twitter. And then I was starting to open up my marriage and discover kink. And so I was pretty much like openly documenting this all on Twitter. And sharing nudes, because that's what we all did on Twitter in the early aughts. And that's where I got started, because I was talking about these things. You know, I'm a fat Black woman, fat Black queer woman, who's talking about these things. So what happens is people see themselves in you, or they see somebody who has one of their identities or a few of their identities talking about things that they've always felt like they couldn't talk about. So in this weird way, I really started connecting with people and I got a following from that. And then it blossomed into a blog on Tumblr, May She Rest in Peace. Yes, it still exists, but it's not the same at all. They removed gift porn, so it's not the same. No, but even removed just like all the people where I was kind of getting guidance because when I was getting into polyamory, again, 2010, we weren't where we are now, but we're 12 years later. And now you're seeing polyamory everywhere. It's on Vice. It's in books. There's so many books. There's more than Sex at Dawn. 2010, we had Sex at Dawn and The Ethical Slut and maybe like one or two others. And that was it. Now there's this explosion. So really, when I was trying to figure out my way through kink and polyamory, I was reading people's blogs on Tumblr. I was reading their experiences. I was going through things and it was keeping up with what was happening with people's lives. And then there were also people giving advice and doing things. So that is how I learned and then also started putting my stuff out there. Because I'm like, if I'm learning from this, somebody can learn something from me. This moves from being a fun thing that I did to like, oh, I'm good at this and can make money doing this and I enjoy doing it. Yeah, completely. I'm curious to know a little bit about your upbringing around sex and relationships and like what that model was like for you. But I'm also curious to know about your journey into kink. What led you, because you said you were married 
and then you were exploring polyamory and kink. But maybe let's start with what that looked like for you growing up. It wasn't good. My single mom, I watched her date badly. We met boyfriends and people and coming in and out of her life and in and out of our lives and all her ups and downs. She was a young mom. My mom gave birth to me when she was 17. So she got pregnant when she was 16, turned 17. And a month later, I was born. She lost her 20s to raising kids. She had my sister four years after she had me. So she had two babies before she was 30. I remember watching her sitting on her bed, watching her get dressed up and put on makeup and perfume and go to things. Like I remember she had this Playboy bunny costume and it's emblazoned in my mind because it was just like, my mom is so sexy. I would sit on my bed like, my mom, wow. But we didn't have those kinds of conversations and we were a nude house and maybe it was because until my brother came along, we were all girls. So it wasn't a thing. Like it didn't feel abnormal. It was just, we talked to my mom, we would go in the bathroom and we'll have conversations while I'm using the bathroom because it's what we did. We would just go talk to our mom in the bathroom or she'd be in the bathtub or sometimes on the toilet. We'd just be like, oh, blah, 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 blah. It was so nudity was always natural. Just being around bodies was always natural, but we never had sex conversations. And then when I did have the trauma stuff happen, like I was molested by a family member and then later I had another, it was a whole thing. But even that didn't trigger conversation, which I wish it would have, but I don't think she had the tools for that. So there was a lot of places where things were open, but there were also no backup information. And I don't think she had it either. And I think she was still finding her way through like what was appropriate and not appropriate. So I got a lot of what I knew, like HBO. I always joke that HBO and Cinemax, aka Skinemax, was my sex ed <laughs> because they were just beginning. I am that old. That was when all of those cable channels were like being born. So like nighttime, you would sneak awake or everybody would have fallen asleep while you were watching a movie and you'd just still be there watching it and nothing. So that was kind of where my upbringing came from with that. And then like my king stuff, I realized I was like, oh, I feel like this is something I might like because I was reading erotica that had some king things in it. And so anything with submissiveness would catch my curiosity and Twitter introduced me to the kink community, like seeing people and two extremes, because there was a lot of extremes on Twitter with people doing their kink. And that was kind of where I was like, oh, this is something I'm curious about. Oh, this is a real life thing. It's not just stuff in a book. I've always known kink exists, but if you're not in the world, it's not like it's there for you. So when I'm reading about it, it feels kind of like fantasy and it's, oh, this is stuff people do in their homes. Not even thinking like, oh, no, there's like clubs and communities and people doing these things. So it was this conjunction of realizing this was something that piqued both my brain and my vagina's curiosity and that I wanted to explore. And then Twitter gave me the platform for it because my first dom was a digital dom that I met on Twitter. And we were together for like maybe a year. And he literally was just a training dom. I was so lucky to meet him because he was from the beginning, like, I'm not trying to be your forever dom, but you're very curious about this. And I'd like to help guide you through as you learn about yourself and things. And he's like, and I know one day we're going to part ways. And like, that did happen, but it was lovely and lucky that that was the first person that I fell in with was someone who was 
really in it to share his knowledge of it and not be an asshole. Yeah, no, totally. It's interesting you say like this trajectory of kink that you were experiencing in more of a fantasy sense and then almost being like, wait, this is a real world. But I think a lot of people don't know that it's a real world. Like you had that arc too, being like, wait, this exists outside of a book or like a narrative. And I knew it because we all like saw real sex, but I that always felt so outlandish. I don't know if you've seen any of real sex or like those old HBO shows, but it all felt like so for entertainment outlandish. So it was like, oh, weird people do it. Or this is just something people do in their house. Like, I don't think it dawned on me that there were whole balls and clubs and big community events and conferences, everything that exists. I didn't get that exploded view of it because it all felt very, oh, this is something you do in private. Not people go to do weekends in Ohio and get kinky together and learning all of that. And then having like 50 shades of gray, which I think really, I got why people were like, wow, this is bananas because that was a moment where folks really saw, oh, this is what people are doing. And there's like more to it than just, I got a little flogger or I got some fun little metal handcuffs. This is a real thing folks are doing. Yeah, totally. It brought that notion to mainstream to <laughs> housewives across America, which is such a funny concept. But okay, so for those who aren't as familiar, what is having a dom like? What was that first relationship with you? You said it was a digital dom. So was that ever something that was happening IRL or was that more of an internet relationship or dynamic? So this particular dom never met in person. This was me learning really what kind of kink I wanted because that's another thing that when you really start getting into it, there are going to be people that tell you like, this is how you do it. And it's only this way. And it's not, there's so many different ways to do it. And there are people doing like 24 seven, which it's their daily life and their protocol is built into their daily life, no matter what, including like going to the grocery store and all the things. And there are people who are bedroom kinky. I tend to be more of a bedroom kinky and with certain people, it's part of my identity, but it's not my 24 seven. I can't be immersed in it. But this relationship was we communicated through text, through Twitter, and we did video calls. And protocol was every morning I had to send him a picture of the day of the outfit that I was choosing. And if I was indecisive, I could ask him which one he liked better. He asked if I wanted him to choose my clothes. And I said, no, I prefer choosing my clothes. And that was a thing, but we talked about it. And I also had to send him a nude of the day, but it was within the first, it was like, what time I got up. So he knew what time I got up. And if I needed to change my awake time, so like if I was going out or doing something with my husband or anything that might change my wake up time, I needed to let him know the day before or else it was me breaking our contract because it was breaking our agreements for things. So he knew what time I woke up. I got like an hour within that first time to send him those pictures. And then there was protocol of letting him know when I got to work, because usually when I got to work, he'd give me like an assignment thing for the day. So it would be like at lunchtime, I want you to put the nipple clamps that you should have brought from home because I told you to bring them on, go to the bathroom, put them on, and you have to wear them while you have lunch, like things like that. And then he knew what time work ended. 
he would always check in and say like, are you doing something after work? Are you going straight home? And like, sometimes he would give me something. And that was our day to day. It was a lot of communication. It was a lot of talking. I appreciated him because he thought I was married and my husband knew about him, but he really also was like, is your husband okay with xyz or it was like whatever plans i had with my spouse came first so he would ask what do you have going on for the week this was before google calendar or before we were knowing about the magic of google calendar if we would have had google calendar i'm sure he would have had me loaded up so that he could see what was going on so he could make things and when i broke rules or didn't get things turned in when i was supposed to get them turned in i had punishments and he would do things like make me write lines I had to like show him the page by page proof. So I'd have to like sign it and number the page. So I couldn't just pretend I had written and I'd have to write lines. There were just different things. So we had that kind of relationship and he was very good at finding ways to give me punishments and punishments and different things. And also where I was exploring some of the things that I enjoy, like pain and whatnot. It felt safe because it was me. At any point, I could have said, I don't want to do this. And I think that was the thing he was trying to empower me with, was that I could always say, hey, I don't want to do this. This isn't. And when things did finally come to an end and I had felt like I had outgrown him and I had met someone in real life that I wanted to pursue a relationship with, a dominant submissive relationship with, I remember having the conversation with him and he was like, yeah, I could tell he felt me getting to that pace where I was maybe moving away from him. It was very lovely and sweet. And he was a very lovely man. And I tell this story often about when I started out, the very first picture I sent him, I was in tears. I hated looking at my body. I did not feel good about myself. I was very mean to myself and I couldn't even look at myself. I would look at myself once I had clothes on to see how they looked, but could not look at myself naked. So to send somebody a naked photo killed me. And that first day I cried, you can't hide when you're naked. And by the time I sent it to him, it was like almost on the deadline. You could tell I'd been crying. He's like, what's wrong? And why are you crying? And I'm like, I don't want you to see me like this. Like, what if you won't want to be with me? Like, and I was saying all this stuff. And he's like, you need to stop. You're going to get in trouble because you're, we don't do that. You're not allowed to be mean to yourself. He's like, I wouldn't ask to see pictures of you if I didn't want to see you. And I was like, okay. And by the end of our relationship, that last photo I sent him, he sends me back the two pictures together. And he's like, look at this girl and look at this girl. He's like, you're two different people. The second picture, my hands are on my hips and I'm smiling and I have like a pose. And he's like, you look so happy and so proud. Do you see the change in you? And I do. So it really was a changing experience for me that I wouldn't have gotten if it wouldn't have been for digital spaces and being able to explore. You know, I'm really interested to know a bit about, if you have information, the psychology of kink, because from what you were explaining to me earlier about your coming of age and how there was some trauma related instances and then going in and hearing this story about kind of like your 180, I'd love to hear what the psychology looks like and even what your own experience kind of around like healing looks like. Because I'm sure a lot of people come into this space as one person and they come out as a totally different, more blossomed version of themselves. I will start by saying kink is not therapy and I don't think it should be used solely as therapy. I think it can be a great tool 
depending on what you've gone through. And yes, the Venn diagram of people who are kinky and people who have experienced trauma, there is some overlap, but it's not the golden rule of kink. There are plenty of people who had perfectly wonderful childhoods and nothing bad happened to them. And they're still kinky as fuck. There are a lot of folks who do gravitate towards it. I really think part of it is it gives permission. It allows you to do the things people say you shouldn't do or shouldn't enjoy. And I'm going to quantify that by let's just go straight to things like age play and race play and things like that. Things that in polite society are not okay. In kink, and I will say there's still spaces where people can be awful. We have to like watch where those lines are blurred when people are using them to be awful. But I think there's spaces where we know we're in a container and we know everybody in that container is an adult and consensual. And we've had lots of conversation about what we're looking for. And you know that you might be asking for something that isn't normally okay. And maybe you don't know quite why it turns you on. Maybe you're not even sure why this is a thing you're seeking, but it is. And there's something in being able to get this thing that isn't great out in the world. If it happened to you outside of a consensual container with someone you cared about, or who at least cares about your safety, it would be awful, but you're able to act these things out. And I don't want to get into the whole, is it right? Is it wrong? I'm not here to like judge people's things. And as long as everybody's consensual and on board and people aren't being awful about it. I don't know if you know, Melina Williams talks, she often talks about race play and how it's helped her through some of the things she's dealt with in her life around racism and other things and this weird way of shining a light on it and it helping her heal. We all have our reasons for doing those things. And I know for me, when I first started, I was a little, which is someone who occupies space of their younger self. So in the king world, it's okay if you talk in a baby voice and you wear onesies and cute bows and you want to color and you have a stuffy and it's a thing and it doesn't have to be sexual. There are whole parts of littledom that have nothing to do with sex. I did not do sex things when I was in my little head space, but it gave me a place to be the kid I never got to be. You know, I had a teen mom and I was taking care of my siblings and she worked nights. I was a grown up at a very young age and I was taking care of kids that were my siblings at a very young age. And I didn't get a lot of a childhood. So being able to let that out, be like this happy, carefree kid that I didn't get to be with other people who got it was just such a gift. Now I always say I don't identify as much with that little space because I feel like I've healed some of those wounds because I've gone to therapy and I've talked about my growing up. And so I've healed those spaces, but it was a tool of regression and being able to be the happy kid that I didn't get to be and be fun and funny and frolic and run and color and just be and be taken care of. And it was very helpful. So I think in conjunction with therapy, it could be very healing. There are other things that I'm sure for folks, they find super healing in spaces. I can't speak to everybody's experiences, but I do know a lot of my things that I've explored in kink have in conjunction with therapy been very healing, like my body image and what is beauty and who gets to decide what's beautiful and also things that aren't normally seen as beautiful. You can look at and see the beauty in them for yourself. And so why can't you do that for yourself? That was such a growing moment for me. And my experience in kink did a lot to build that up because I was in spaces where people weren't 
perfect and sculpted and statuesque. You're so hot. And just hearing people say those things to bodies that you wouldn't normally hear that said about was magical. Going to these conferences and seeing people in their full gear, all types of bodies, all shapes, sizes, races, heights, all these things, and just everybody being in this sexual, sexy, admirational space of where people were appreciating each other. It lifted the veil of, oh, beauty is only this. And it helped me even get rid of some of my own biases and how I see people and what I look at. And so it helped me with me. I think it can be a great tool. I don't think if you're like, I'm going to go to kink because I have this issue. I don't think it's necessarily going to help. Again, therapy is great. But if you are intrigued by it, look into why you were intrigued by the things you're intrigued about. There's probably something to that. And there's probably something to like why you enjoy a certain thing and what it could do for you in a healing space. I love that so much. It makes me think like the way you were describing diversity and just humanity of a group like that. That's just mankind. It's just funny how we have created so many conditioning ideas and ideals around what is sexy and sexual. And it's interesting because it's like, okay, well, what you did was just are seeking out a realistic and diverse expression of what sexuality can be. I think what I'm trying to get at is like in a way, and this is not me degrading what kink is because it is like a specialty, but it's also kind of showing maybe it's not so different after all. Maybe that's just really the human spectrum of sex. And maybe what we've whittled down to what sex really has become is what is so narrow minded. I don't think you can walk away from seeing someone dressed as a horse and being led around and their owner asking if you'd like to feed them sugar cubes. If you've never had a human horse eat sugar cubes out of your hand, have you lived? But there's something in it and the happiness that it feel rolling off that person's body. The joy that they are getting in their full pony gear and they look so adorable and they're being led around and you can just feel it. The joy is palpable. You can't say, oh, this is wrong. They're so happy. (laughs) Is this wrong? Exactly. Like, I think I sometimes always get back to this idea where I'm like, humans are innately playful and kind of silly and weird. And we try so hard in our adult lives to conceal that. And it's like, actually, we're just all really playful. And I think we've kind of inhibited ourselves from really exploring that so much. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. How fun. I'm excited to share part two next week as we get into the topic of sex toys. And in this episode, Lola shares a ton of how-tos, specifically around how to buy product, how to know what works for you, questions to ask yourself, your partner. And we also get into the specifics around butt play because we all have butts and we all have opportunity to play there. We have a lot to look forward in that conversation. And yeah, I'm just really excited to deliver you some insights on just how we can better explore and the ways that we can go about doing so. So with that said, I hope you have a great rest of your week and I will catch you next. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>